according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke chapter 2. Continuing our study in the Life of Christ series. We do have some notes available, uh, packets of notes there by the door. Uh, you won't necessarily need them this morning, but you can take one on your way out. They will include all of the notes of everything that we have covered up through today, up through this present uh, uh, lesson, dealing with the 15th, 16th, and 17th areas of the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. We're following along the harmony of the Gospels, using that as a structural outline in which to organize the material in this class. In Luke chapter 2, we have really the only incident recorded in the Lord's childhood or even in his young adult life, the only incident that's really recorded prior to his coming for baptism at the River Jordan, being then at that point at least 30 years of age. Uh, so this gives us our glimpse. There's a tremendous amount of other material that's out there that was written in the early centuries of the church, a lot of uh, apocryphal works, a lot of very fanciful forgeries and so forth claiming to be you know, the gospel of the infancy of Christ or the gospel of Mary or different things like that, none of which were uh, legitimate books of the Bible or ever recognized as such and were clearly fraudulent from the time they were produced. Um, but here we have in the inspired word of God an incident, the only incident that is recorded for us of this period of his life. And this then would be very important for us to examine. All right, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41 well, the comment of growth begins in verse uh, 40. In verse 40. Did you take just a single sheet? Take a whole packet there. There's a whole packet on those notes. Yeah, Sharon will get you the rest of that one. In Luke 2.40 it says, The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And we spent perhaps a little bit more time than necessary last week, but I thought it was important that we examine the nature of growing up. And the nature of the kenosis, the fact that God the Son emptied himself, meaning that he didn't stop being omniscient, but he stopped using his omniscience. That he stopped tapping into and accessing his omni-attributes. He had to experience human life in order to become our substitute, in order to identify with us. And so this then became a very important concept that we examined. We'll come back to it here this morning. And try to wrap up this entire episode. Before we do, though, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to set aside distractions and give us concentration. Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We do ask, Father, for humility and teachability this morning. We ask, Father, that you would set aside distractions. And indeed, Father, put your hedge of protection around us. Protect us here as we worship. We thank you for your faithfulness to preserve this lampstand, and we rejoice to have the opportunity on this day to receive instruction. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. The first point in this section, and I really only have five overall main points. The meat of this is coming in main point four. But the first point of observation, having emptied himself, the mortal humanity of Jesus required growth. Having emptied himself... The mortal humanity of Jesus required growth. Now stop for a moment and consider that when God made Adam in the Garden of Eden, or he made Adam and then placed him in the Garden of Eden, God created an adult male. 
He, Adam was fully adult, fully grown, an adult male when he was created. And sinless and perfect, of course, like Jesus Christ was without sin. Um, but And he could have, when we delve into the realms of possibilities and could-haves, you know, could-have, would-have, and should-haves, he could have done the same thing in terms of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that w- would have prevented God's sovereignty from, you know, molding and fashioning the dust, creating another human male body like he did for Adam, and and then God the Son, at that point, emptying himself of, of uh, under kenosis and entering into the body that was then prepared. But the Father did not do that. Among multiple other reasons include the fact that the Christ had to be a son of David, in which case we're talking about lineage and literal descent. He needed to have uh, you know, a, a chain of genealogy going back to David. And so the Adamic op- option of fashioning a whole new body, an adult male body out of the dust, and letting Christ enter into the world as an adult um, was not an option, given that he needed to be a son of David. So a baby's needed, and uh, the prophecy, in fact, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. A baby has to grow up. And this is a part, again, of, of the Father's perfect plan that allowed for the Son to grow up. And we see that growing up happening here. And we see that it is, in fact, a work of divine providence. And it is, in fact, a work of divine grace. As we read in verse 40, the child continued to grow and become strong. He was not at first strong because, of course, he was at first a baby. <clears throat> but he would grow in human strength, in spiritual strength as he grows in the grace and knowledge of God. Increasing in wisdom, he had to learn. Increasing means you're going from a lesser state to a greater state. If you're increasing in knowledge, that means you're acquiring things that you did not previously know. But you're learning new things that now you know, and now you can correlate it to what you knew before, and knowledge is built on knowledge. See, that's the way it works in any field, but especially in the Word of God. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And Jesus Christ, in his humanity now, in his humanity, needed to grow. God can't grow. Uh, The idea of growth indicates imperfection, (laughs) that there is something less than what I could be, and so I need to grow in order to get to where I can be. See, God is perfect in his omniscience, in his power, in his glory, and so forth, and he cannot grow, because that immutability would be then destroyed if he needed to improve or needed to grow. But Jesus Christ and his humanity needed to grow, because he was an infant and he needed to learn. And so we see this process, and we see that it is a work of grace. The grace of God was upon him, preserving him, sustaining him, particularly in the uh, stages of infancy and toddlerhood and all the rest, until he gets to the point where he is himself volitionally accountable. A passage that we examined last week in Isaiah chapter 7, I think, points to how quickly the boy, the child, will become volitionally accountable, that he will be given that capacity to reject evil and choose good at a very early age, the toddler age, we would call it, with a capacity to reject evil and and obey good. And uh, not only in the context of Isaiah's prophecy does that then become interesting, but when uh, in application to the humanity of Jesus Christ, it becomes most most remarkable. 
Now, last week we went through all the aspects of kenosis and spelled out how it means he laid aside his privileges. He can't stop being God because if God could stop being God, he wouldn't be God. See, he has to be immutable. So he's not, he does not change. He cannot be less than perfect. He can never become less than perfect. He can't stop being omnipotent, can't stop being omniscient, can't stop being omnipresent. But he can choose to not exercise those. He can choose to limit how he operates. And this, then, is truly the expression of humility that our Savior manifests, because satanic thinking is always self-promoting, self-glorification. I will rise, I will do this, I will be glorified. And Jesus Christ did just the opposite. He did less. He humbled himself. He made himself lower. Made himself lower. Perhaps... Uh, uh, omnipotence was, is an area that's hard to get a handle on, or omnipresence is an area to get a handle on, or omniscience is an is a area that's hard to get a handle on. Especially omniscience, because there's some places in the Gospels where Jesus Christ seemingly knows things beyond what humanity would typically know. And people are very quick to point out, well, he's God the Son, he's omniscient. And so they explain it that way. I think that's a very poor way to explain it. In fact, worse than poor, I think it is a false way to explain it. Uh, for instance, when he meets up with, well, we can turn there real quickly. Let me just give you this as a preview. Over in uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 1, you just want to turn over there. If I can just take this one side trip and spend five minutes of review, it'll keep us from trying to recover everything we did last week. And uh, Philip found Nathanael in verse 45 of John 1 and said, uh, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and, and uh, also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. All right. Now this is often taken, and a lot of pastors and scholars and so forth will talk about, well, God the Son is omniscient, and God the Son sees all things and knows all things. And uh, we're going to deal with this not from the standpoint of omniscience, but also from the standpoint of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is a prophet. That he's prophet, priest, and king, and quite frequently when we study the Old Testament prophets, quite frequently we observe that uh, as a part of their prophetic office and a part of their prophetic gift, they were given uh, visions and information ahead of time and so forth to alert them as far as their work assignment is concerned. So we will focus on that passage when we get there, not from the standpoint of omniscience, knowing who Philip is and Nathaniel in this, but from the standpoint of his prophetic gift, his prophetic ministry. And uh, I think the more that we think of, uh, say, Elijah, Elisha, Samuel, the Old Testament prophets, the more we will have a better uh, uh, understanding of what Jesus Christ was accomplishing as truly an Old Testament prophet. A prophet in, don't get confused because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in the New Testament in the, in, in the printed form. Uh, the events taking place in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in fact Old Testament events that they are before the cross under the stewardship of Israel. So even though the books are written in Greek and are found in their literary form in the New Testament, the events in those books belong in the Old Testament. And dispensationally, I think we're very solid on that. So he did not exercise omniscience. He did not exercise omnipotence. He did not exercise omnipresence. See, he had to go from place to place to place to place. 
If he wanted to cross the Sea of Galilee, for example, he had to get into a boat or walk on the water. Or somehow he had to get from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side. He couldn't just, you know, dissolve the body here and rematerialize the body over here because he's omnipresent. See, but he was limiting himself to a physical human body and our physical human bodies can't dissolve there and reappear here. See. It'd be kind of fun if we could teleport or do you know a, a Star Trek beam transporter beam type maneuver like that, but we can't do that. If we want to go from here to here, we got to travel the distance in between. So these are the limitations that God the Son voluntarily agreed to, as a part of the not only the hypostatic union but as a part of the incarnation, his walk in the human flesh and the human body that he uh, undertook during this period of time. All right, under point two, we, asked, we zeroed in on the aspect of grace that's pictured here in verse 40. And uh, also the favor related term that is focused in on verse 52. The uh, Under point three, Joseph and Mary faithfully raised their family under the requirements of the Mosaic law. Recognizing their stewardship. They were not church-age saints. They were believers under the dispensation of Israel. And they were under the law. Jesus Christ was born under the law. And that's a very important doctrinal issue that's brought up in Galatians, for example. That Jesus Christ was born under the law. And yet he came to set us free from that law. To bring us into salvation. To bring us into grace. And uh, so many other things that come out of uh, this particular study. This particular Passover pilgrimage was unique among all the annual pilgrimages that their family ever undertook. They took an annual pilgrimage the year after he was born, the year after that, the year after that, for 11 straight years. Now here's year number 12. And presumably, year 13, year 14, the years after this, likewise, they're going to keep coming back to Jerusalem year by year by year. But this is the one that's recorded. That's why this is unique. It is the one out of 30 or more, 33, 34, 35 or more, uh, between his birth and his baptism, where it's recorded for us in Scripture that a significant event occurred in the life of Christ. Significant for his development, significant in terms of his understanding of his place, significant in, in determining the will of God for his life. And hopefully, we're going to have a handle on that here this day, this hour, when we start to understand what Jesus Christ knew about his work assignment and who his father was. He knew who his father was. At the age of 12, he knew who his father was, and probably long before that. He knew that, that Joseph had no part in the, in the procreation process that brought about his humanity, but God the Father was his father. When he says, did you not know I had to be in my father's house or about my father's business? In verse 49. All right. He's, his father, his adopted father and his biological mother are right there. But he's talking about his heavenly father in that verse. And he has a perspective at the age of 12 that he has a work assignment from God the Father. Extraordinary. Especially since how many church age believers um, go for decades without ever having any clue that they have a work assignment designated from God the Father that they are to fulfill for the glory of Jesus Christ. So we have a unique pilgrimage. Now this... Another aspect of this being unique under point B, this Passover would be the last time Jesus of Nazareth would attend as a child. This Passover would be the last time Jesus of Nazareth would attend as a child. Being 12 years of age, he would still be reckoned as a child under his father's authority for this worship service, for this week of Passover and then the feast of the uh, 
of the unleavened bread that lasted for seven days after Passover. All right. For the next year, it's not recorded in Luke or any other book, but for the next year when he comes back, he will be participating as an adult son. He will be participating as an adult male, a 13-year-old male, a son of the law. And we gave you some of the history on this. Uh, the Jewish boy was recognized as entering manhood at 13 years of age. At that time, he became a son of the law, called a son of the law. All right. Um, in, in the uh, Hebrew, the word is bane, but in the, in the uh, uh, Aramaic, it becomes bar, the word for son. We have bar mitzvah. All right. This is the rite of passage as a boy becomes a man. He becomes a son of the law. And he was qualified to participate as an adult in these services. He was also qualified to constitute a synagogue in a particular location. Point four. The unusual event on this occasion actually occurred at the conclusion of the Passover week. The unusual event on this occasion actually occurred at the conclusion of the Passover week. They were on their way back to Nazareth, that is, Joseph and Mary were, with the other family members, when they noticed that the Lord was missing and had to go back to Jerusalem and find him on the third day. And this is uh, quite interesting as well. Verse 46 says, after three days. Okay. What a, we'll have another aspect on this coming up much later in this study. In fact, at the, towards the very end of this Life of Christ series, because the Lord Jesus Christ will himself be sacrificed on the Passover. And then on the third day, what happens? <laughs> okay, so keep that on the third day idea in your mind as we uh, proceed through this uh, through this study. Now, this is where we start to get into the realms where we want to uh, be cautious that we don't overread or we don't read into the text. Or we don't try to make the text say something that it doesn't. But at the same time, we want to recognize that there are lessons in this text we're expected to learn. All scriptures, God read them profitable. There's messages in this text that we should be able to make application uh, on. All right. And we can't just throw up our hands and say, oh, well, I don't understand it uh, because he's given it to us. and We're expected to study and to uh, learn from that which he has revealed all right because we're tempted just to throw up our hands and say well this is this is uh this is weird you know if i'm out of town and i'm going back home and my son stays there and doesn't tell me and i i spend three days looking for him and i have to go back and find him well in my book all right that's disobedience <laughs> that's sin and he's going to get spanked all right because he's still under my authority and all the rest well christ isn't in rebellion against his parents for staying in Jerusalem. And he's not in rebellion against his parents for not telling them what he was doing. But in part, there's the breakdown of communication here. And the Lord had to recognize that because he assumed that they knew. You know what happens when you assume? <laughs> because sometimes they don't know. You assume that they know, but they didn't. All right. It's not sin on his part. It's just the way the communication breaks down between human beings. And he assumed that they understood, but they didn't. And so having reestablished communication, it's quite remarkable what he does here. All right. Subpoint A. Joseph and Mary returned to Nazareth in a caravan of relatives and acquaintances. Joseph and Mary returned to Nazareth, or started their return trip to Nazareth, in a caravan of relatives and acquaintances. Sometimes, again, we're so separated by culture. 2,000 years and time and space and distance. 
traveling the, these miles in the ancient world was not necessarily the easiest thing in the world. See, you had to cross rivers, you had to cro- travel along roads, you had to, uh, I mean, travel was, was extraordinary in the ancient world. Even on up to fairly recent times, considering. It's described for us here, uh, verse 43, as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy, now it's interesting because he was a child in verse 40, but he's called a boy in verse 43, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. His parents were unaware of it. But supposed him to be in the caravan, they went a day's journey and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. See, this would be like when we load up the van and we drive to Seattle, for example. That's three or four days to get there. All right? And it'd be like getting to our first leg, which is sometimes southern uh, New Mexico, somewhere around Clovis or down in there somewhere. Or if we're headed more northwest in the summer months, when we can go across the Rockies, we head to Santa Fe. We make Santa Fe in our first day. In the winter months, when we go straight across to Los Angeles and then up to Seattle, then we, you know, hit about Clovis, New Mexico, or thereabouts. All right. So this would be like getting to Clovis, New Mexico, and then looking back in the van and realizing, wait a minute, you know, Bob's not here. <laughs> you know, Alethea, have you seen Bob? Chris, where'd Bob go? Zoe, you know, where's Bob? And we don't know. We look all over for him. We end up going all the way back to Austin, and there he is. All right. So, supposing him to be in the caravan, and what a day's journey, and and. You know, you can speculate why didn't they know or why weren't they concerned. And, and you can imagine that he's he's always been very responsible up until now. <laughs> he's never disobeyed. Can you imagine? You know, some parents think they have the perfect child. But Joseph and Mary did. All right? He never lied to them. He never deceived them. He never disobeyed. He never sinned. So they have a lot of trust with him, obviously. And uh, now they begin looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances because they weren't the only ones that made the pilgrimage. Indeed, every devout Jew would have made the pilgrimage. Uh, the ones that stayed behind in Nazareth and said, nah, I'm not going to go. They were, they were breaking the law. They were violating Mosaic law by not going to observe the Passover. And uh, so they did not find him. They returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And then after three days, they found him in the temple. Point B. We're going to highlight in here on what the Lord was doing during this time. The boy, Jesus, remained. Now, the boy is called a pais, P-A-I-S, number 3816. Number 3816. If you want to do a word study on that, it's kind of interesting to notice the different vocabulary terms from the infant to the child to the boy. Okay? Um, And that helps us, especially in these early chapters of Luke. The shepherds, they came into the manger to see the infant. But the wise men went to the house. They didn't go to the manger. They went to the house and they saw the child. All right. The child was growing in verse 40. But now it is the boy. Hapais. So he's not a toddler. He's not even a, a, a younger boy. He is on the verge of manhood here. And he remained. Hupamino is an outstanding word study if you ever want to pursue it, not for the physical term necessarily. Uh, Hupamino, uh, uh, hupo under and meno to abide, to abide under, to hold your ground, to endure. A lot of times it's an endurance word, number 5278. Most frequently in the New Testament, though, it refers to a mental activity. It refers to uh, holding fast your position. 
not wavering when fears and doubts and other attacks come in, but you're going to abide in the Word of God and you're going to hold to your convictions. Hupamino is a is a, is a very positive, encouraging term when it's used mentally, when it's used of, uh, of the spiritual conflict that we pay, and that we face. This is what we want our children to be able to do when they leave home and they go off to college and all these worldly professors start telling them that the Bible's a bunch of lies and there is no God and, and evolution is, is scientific fact and all the rest. We want our children to be able to endure, to uh, abide in the truth that they have been grounded in. Or when it's used physically, it just simply means to... To, uh, to abide or to, uh, to remain and not depart. As the Lord did, he did not depart, but he remained in, uh, in Jerusalem. Hupameno, to stay in a place beyond an expected point of time, to remain, to stay behind while others go away. We have uh, the use of this in Acts 17 and verse 14. When um, there's a little... Dictionary entry on Hupameno, number 5278, in Acts 17.14, uh, on Paul's missionary journey here, where quite often things didn't uh, go according to plan, and he had to sometimes split, split up his forces. He had to sometimes send uh, people different directions. In Acts 17.40, when they had to flee Berea, it's interesting, um, they'd already been run out of Thessalonica, and then the troublemakers chased them to Berea, and they had to leave there. But what they ended up doing, it says, immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy, Hupomenod, they stayed there. They remained there. They, they were not forced to flee. They were not required to depart. They were able to remain. They were able to stay as others were leaving. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So they've parted ways. They departed out of Jerusalem, but Jesus Christ remained there. Now, what was he doing while he was there? He wasn't just, you know, goofing off, hanging with his buddies. Because, quite frankly, all of his buddies, <laughs> you're not from Jerusalem. This isn't his town. This isn't his neighborhood. His buddies were, you know, whatever friends he would have had at that time, were back in Nazareth or would have been in the caravan with his brothers, sisters, and so forth. So, point one, he was sitting in the midst of the teachers. Sitting in the midst of the teachers. When they found him. We're going to zero in here on verses 46 and following. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers. Sitting in the midst of the teachers. All right. There's no mention of any other students in this verse or throughout the text, throughout the passage. Sitting in the midst of the teachers. Not sitting in the midst of the students, listening to teachers but sitting in the midst of the teachers. All right? And we can do a study on Gamaliel and the other schools, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other, uh, even among the Pharisees, the different uh, rabbinic schools that uh, competed, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai and how they were structured and situated. But beyond any of that, I mean, we can relate it to modern school setups. It's all the same. You've got, Adult teachers teaching young people, all right? In theory, the adults are the ones with the wisdom and knowledge, and they're imparting that to the young people, okay? That's how it's supposed to work. And you tend to have a single teacher and multiple students. If you have multiple teachers, they break out and they divide up the students among them and to where you get a teacher and multiple students. And don't get me wrong, you may end up 
You may have a variety of teachers at different times, but the, the idea of a single student being surrounded by multiple teachers is unusual. It is not the standard practice of instruction in our culture or their culture. Okay? This would be like they didn't find him in a classroom surrounded by a bunch of students with a teacher there quizzing him. They found him in the faculty, lo- in the faculty lounge. See, they found him among the teachers by himself. No, there's no other mention of students here, but he's in there and there's all the teachers surrounding him. All right. Sitting in the midst of the teachers is the description. No mention of any other students. Again, verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple. And the phrase in the temple encompasses the, the temple, what's often called the temple proper, the most holy place, the holy place, the outer courtyard, and then the buildings surrounding. It would include priest quarters, it would include classrooms, it would include kitchens, it would include uh, storerooms, it, it would include the entire complex, the temple complex. Uh, we don't assume that he's you know, sitting here within the veil, but he's in the temple complex in one of the uh, instruction areas. In fact, there were a number of schools attached to the temple and within the temple for uh, pharisaical and, and, and other rabbinic instruction. But there is an absence of students mentioned here. There is a plurality of teachers mentioned here, and that's what I want to observe from the text itself. Secondly, listening to the teacher's instruction and asking them questions. Listening to the teacher's instruction and asking them questions. Sitting in the midst of the teachers, both, and there's two activities, we have the English word both to to set them up here, both listening to them and asking them questions. All right, listening is a kuo, A-K-O-U-O, number 191, it's where we get all of our acoustic words for acoustics. Uh, the quality of sound and how sound travels and all the acoustical uh, things. You know, we have to examine the acoustical properties of this room, for example, when we dis- uh, determined that having four speakers on four corners actually produced acoustical echoes and problems, but having two speakers in front actually had a better acoustical quality at thrusting sound waves into the room, see. Other aspects of acoustical engineering include the fact that the carpet has acoustical value. The, the material on the seats has acoustical value. See, the walls are a problem because they don't have acoustical value. In fact, the hard surface tends to bounce the, the uh, sound waves, and some of the times that will produce an echo and different things. The cloth in front of the speakers is specifically designed as acoustical cloth. You don't just hang any sheet up there. You put acoustical cloth up there that is designed to, the fibers are woven in such a way and have a consistency where it doesn't impede the sound coming through them. All right, so all of our terms acoustical come from the Greek akuo, to hear. Now, you you understand there's a difference between hearing and listening, Right? Anybody with children knows that. There's a difference. And anybody with a husband knows that. <laughs> There's a difference between hearing and listening. You know, how many wives you tell your husband something and you thought he heard you. And maybe he heard you, but did he listen? It's a big difference. Okay? Jesus Christ was listening. And you know how you know if your student is listening? Or if your child is listening? Or if your husband is listening? You ask him a question. <laughs> you know, that relates to what you think they weren't just listening to. And sometimes they surprise you. Christopher surprises me, and he, I don't know if he surprises Sharon, but there's times that I think that he's just out in outer space somewhere, daydreaming and not even listening or paying attention. And I say, Christopher, what did I just say? And he repeats it back word for word, you know. 
like a little mimic or something. He's, he's just, he was listening, he just didn't appear to be listening. Jesus Christ is listening because he is listening to them. And not only are they asking him questions, but he's asking them questions. See, you know that the person's listening when they're able to reply with a follow-up question to what you just told them. See, and whatever the content of doctrine is, whatever the area of Bible study is, they are, they are teaching, offering instruction, and he is able to offer questions to them that indicates that not only is he listening, not only is he understanding what they're saying, but he is even wanting to go beyond what they're explaining. Possibly even uh, challenging what they're saying. See, if in his questions he's demonstrating uh, shortcomings or flaws or errors in, in their teachings. See, we don't know what form his question took, but the, the vocabulary of eperotao is quite remarkable. E-P-E-R-O-T-A-O, eperotao. Number 1905. And there's two primary words for <coughs> there's two primary words for ask. Uh, erotao is one of them. Aiteo is another one. All right, and um, I can put that up on the screen here. Just blanking that out. Two typical words for ask include aiteo. A-I-T-E-O, and erotao, E-R-O-T-A-O. These are the two words typically to ask. To ask for something, in other words, a request to receive something, or to ask for information, or to ask uh, with, with just general questions in mind, both of which are used for asking other people, both of which are used for asking the Lord for things in prayer. They are common words for asking. We have a compound of this second one here, though, in our current text, because we have a compound of erotao with ep. Where we take the, prof, the preposition epi and we add erotao to it, we get ep erotao. Ep erotao. And so this is epi meaning upon. Um, we get an idea here in the compound of this questioning that he's not just simply asking informative questions, but he's asking constructive questions. He's asking uh, maybe even um, uh, opposing questions or uh, conflicting questions, shall we say. This would be a term, for example, of uh, in, a, in, a, in a courtroom for a cross-examination. These aren't just general information questions. These are the tough questions. Okay? It's a compound of erotao. It's ep erotao. And so as you pursue word studies, it's kind of interesting to see how different authors use such terms. You'd want to examine erotao, for example. See how it's used in Luke and Acts. Look at ep erotao. Again, see how it's used in Luke and Acts and get a flavor for uh, the author, for Luke, and how he uses different terms under different circumstances. So here's Ep Erotao, number 1905. So we understand that he is listening to the instruction and he's able to ask questions, not just basic questions like, like you know, a child would ask if he's confused and he doesn't understand the answer. You know, you taught him that uh, the capital of, of uh, Washington State is Olympia. And at the end of the class, these, you know, are there any questions? And the kid raises his hand and says, uh, what, was, what was the capital of Washington again? You know, and, and he's just confused. Okay, that would be a general question. 
these are not the general questions. These are very direct questions. See, this, these are questions with content, questions with follow up, questions that demand um, very particular answers. It, questions that give amazement, as we see in verse 47. They were amazed. Two things. They were amazed at his understanding and at his answers. So he was asking questions. He was also giving answers. Which we give you under point three. He possessed understanding and he gave answers. He possessed understanding and he gave answers. Sometimes the most effective questions you can ask are the ones that you already know the answer to. This is what the Lord was doing at the age of 12 with Bible scholars. At the age of 12 with Bible scholars, he's asking these particular questions. And the professors here, the teachers here, the rabbis, I guess we call them by their Hebrew name. <laughs> all right, The rabbis here were remarkably astonished at this student. Amazed that he had the capacity for such conversation. Understanding is sunesis, S-U-N-E-S-I-S, sunesis. Uh, the prefix soon often uh, uh, signifies to put things together. See, like soon patheo, to feel together, where we get sympathy. If you sympathize with somebody, you're feeling together what they're feeling. All right? Or soon ergo, you're working together. We're called God's fellow workers. We work together. Now here's sunesis or sunesis. Here's where you're putting things together, where you really have an understanding. It's not just that you have, you know, fact A, fact B, and fact C, and you're accumulating knowledge. But you're relating fact A to fact B to fact C, and you're putting them all together, and you're developing an understanding of how these things work. That's understanding. All right? Sunesis, number 4907. He was able to put things together. You know, quite often a student uh, can accumulate facts, and he can memorize lists, he can memorize dates, and he can score real well on particular tests. But they still remain separate components, compartmentalized, as it were, in thinking. And they're not synthesizing. They're not putting together the different areas of instruction and actually developing an understanding of the overall, uh, of the overall realm of study. But Jesus Christ had an understanding. We're told in Proverbs to gain wisdom and with your wisdom to gain understanding. See, Put these things together so that you have an understanding of how the Christian way of life functions. And he was also giving them answers. Apocrisis. A-P-O-K-R-I-S-I-S. Apocrisis. Chrisis itself speaks of judgment. Speaks of discernment. Speaks of making proper decisions. And apocrisis means to give an answer. That you are responding to a set of conditions and you have the answer for it. So he has understanding and he's giving answers. We could even say offering judgments. Offering judgments. Because he's able to correlate these areas of doctrine, he's able to give a judgment with respect to the subject matter that they're discussing. And we're, and we're not even told what the subject matter is. You know, are they, are they discussing the law? Possibly. Are they discussing uh, Israel? Are they discussing uh, the place of Israel and God's plan? Possibly. Are they discussing the Davidic throne, the covenant with David? Possibly. The covenant with Abraham? Possibly. We don't know. All these would have been areas of doctrine, areas of study for the rabbis, for the, for the nation of Israel under their stewardship. Would they have been discussing the Abrahamic land grant? Would they have been discussing the, uh, 
the conquest of, of Israel under Joshua, discussing the, the uh, up and down uh, a turmoil of the period of the judges. Were they discussing the exile to Babylon and the return? We don't know. Any one of those could have been an area of study, or quite possibly all of them could be an area of study, and Jesus Christ was putting them all together because of his understanding, his sunesis, the way that he could put together these areas of teaching and offer forth judgment and discernment. He was giving answers. He was giving answers. He was able to offer judgment, see, This is truly an aspect of wisdom. We know he was increasing in wisdom. It tells us in verse 40 he was increasing in wisdom. He had, not only did he have wisdom, but he had increased wisdom before he even got here at the age of 12. Okay? Quite quite frankly, here in the Christian way of life, there are some things that we can't point to a single verse and say, well, you know, 3 Timothy 4.4 says, you know, spell it out. So sometimes a mature believer has to draw principles from a wide variety of areas of Scripture. And you can say, well, we've got a principle that I draw here from Proverbs. There's a principle I can draw here in application from Ephesians. There's a, there's a doctrine that I understand here from Romans. And so in wisdom now, a mature believer can, can take these things, a principle from Proverbs, maybe a, an application from the Psalms, a, a doctrinal study from 1 Corinthians somewhere. And he says, you know, based upon all of this, in my understanding of, of, of doctrine, I'm going to make such and such a decision. This is my judgment. This is my discernment. And so this is my decision based upon these, uh, a synthesis of these, of these areas of teaching. Okay? And that's quite common. In fact, we're expected to be able to make those judgments. And what this passage is highlighting is Jesus Christ at this age was equipped... At this age, he was equipped to take these areas of doctrine and put them together. Not because he's omniscient and he knows everything, but because he was a faithful student and Joseph and Mary had been teaching him from birth. Joseph and Mary have been grounding him in the scriptures. And he's been learning them and learning how to put them together. He has a tremendous understanding and the ability to ask the tough questions, the ability to put things together, and the ability to make decisions or come to these judgments Point four, the temple teachers were amazed. Existemi. They were amazed, really, to lose one's mind or to be out of one's senses. To lose one's mind, to be out of one's senses. Existemi. Histemi is to stand, and existemi is to stand out. It's as if you're standing outside of your own mind, just too stunned to believe what you're looking at. Existemi, number 1839, to lose one's mind, to be out of one's senses. We have the term utilized in this way in Mark 3 and verse 21, the Gospel of Mark. He came home and such a crowd uh, gathered again and such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. <laughs> See, he came back from the baptism at the River Jordan, and one of his early stops was back in Nazareth again, and they, they thought, man, he's lost his senses. You know, who does this carpenter think he is? Second Corinthians 5 and verse 13. I don't recall here at the moment. Um... Ah, he says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. <laughs> Quite an interesting uh, 
message there that Paul was giving uh, the Corinthians. That he wasn't promoting himself. He wasn't uh, doing some things there. There's a much larger context to that, but just verse 13 by itself. If we are beside ourselves, if we are ex istami, if we're out of our minds, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. And there's the contrast. All right. The temple teachers were out of their mind. They they were shocked, stunned. Okay. And I, I want to actually I don't want to use the word stunned because that's coming up here of Joseph and Mary. But they were literally out of their mind, un you know just absolutely cannot believe the wisdom that this twelve year old is offering. He's not an adult. He's not. Um, and and perhaps what's got them most stunned. And I think this is illustrated here it's illustrated throughout the gospels in christ's adult ministry it's illustrated repeatedly in the book of acts when the sanhedrin and others would encounter uh, peter and john for example what, what's what's what they're more struck by is not just the fact that he's got this wisdom and he's got this knowledge and is that he didn't go to their schools to get it <laughs> you know of all the schools that are represented here the, the school of Hillel, the school of shammai the finest rabbinical schools the most brilliant Legal minds, see, for Jewish law and, and the Old Testament knowledge was here. And here comes this country bumpkin hit carpenter from Nazareth. And he has all this knowledge and all this understanding and all of this wisdom and stature and favor with both man and God. And he's able to put these things together. He's able to ask the tough questions. He's able to give the most discerning answers. And it's driving him nuts. <laughs> Because he didn't get it from their schools, and he didn't get it from them. And who does this guy think he is? Okay? It's going to come up again in uh, in his adult life. Uh, the Sanhedrin, again, is going to be stunned at John and, and Peter that they have such understanding, because they're just these Galilean fishermen. How do they know all this stuff? And so they're amazed. They are amazed. The translation by Kenneth Wiest all who were listening to him were astounded to the point of a mental imbalance at his grasp and comprehension and his ability to give them answers which exhibited a discriminating private judgment. This is Kenneth Wiest in his expanded New Testament where he really takes the full sense of all of these verbs and all of these nouns that are so alive in their description. All who were listening to him were astounded to the point of a mental imbalance. He really brought out existemi in its fullest sense. At his grasp and comprehension, that's sunesis, at his grasp and comprehension and his ability to give them answers, apocrisis, to give them answers which exhibited a discriminating private judgment. He was able to give answers that demonstrated that he had thought through Thoroughly, and he knew not only what the answer was, but why he was giving the answer. Okay? And we see this a lot because we homeschool and we see it with our children. We ask them questions, and it's pretty obvious that when they're giving an answer, but they're not exactly sure, <laughs> when they're guessing more than answering, and you say, Is that a guess or an answer? You know? And you can tell when they really know it. When they're giving an answer, and they know it's the answer, and they know why it's the answer. Okay? There's a lot of times that's coming up here lately where Bob's giving answers in the, the Bible curriculum, for example, that are, have some, some variance with 
with what the curriculum is approaching it with, see. And he's able to recognize that the curriculum is taking this approach, but what he's heard from his pastor in the local church is this approach over here, see. And he's not going to get sidetracked by the covenant theology because he's been grounded in dispensational theology, all right? And he knows why he's answering and what he's answering. This is what Jesus Christ was doing. And they were astounded at this. They were astounded at this. Now, point C. Joseph and Mary were ignorant of Jesus' activity. They were ignorant of Jesus' activity. Now, ignorance is not necessarily a bad thing, unless it's a volitional, willful ignorance, where somebody chooses to be ignorant of God's Word, or somebody chooses to be ignorant of doctrine. There's nothing... We're all ignorant of something because none of us knows everything, right? So there's, there's natural human ignorance just based upon being a human being. Joseph and Mary were ignorant of Jesus' activity. So we've already zeroed in on what Jesus was doing during this time. Under point C, we're going to zero in on what Mary and Joseph were doing during this time. First of all, sub-point so one, they were unaware of his absence. They were unaware of his absence. Backing up for the moment, back to verse 43. Uk egnosan. They did not gnosko. They did not know. It's factual knowledge. Gnosko is factual knowledge. They were unaware of his absence. It says, Uk egnosan. Uk egnosan. All right? We have here the negative uk plus the aorist of gnosko. They did not know. They were not knowing. In verse 43, as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. They just didn't know. They didn't have the factual knowledge. Gnosko is to know. Just factual knowledge. Number 1097, if you want to pursue a word study, but that's a long one on Gnosko. But it begins the process of gnosis, epinosis, sunesis, understanding, Sophia, wisdom. All right. Oida, full knowledge. There's a lot of terms for mental comprehension, and most of them are in this passage <laughs> in one place or another. So they were ignorant. They did not know. Secondly, they supposed he was in the caravan. That's a problem when you don't know, but you rather suppose. Okay, you start thinking. Namizo, to think. N-O-M-I-Z-O, namizo. N-O-M-I-Z-O, namizo. This is to think. To form an idea about something, but with some suggestion of tentativeness or refraining from a definitive statement. So it's a thinking word, but it's also an uncertain word. You think, but you're not exactly sure. Okay? God doesn't want us to think without being exactly sure. He wants us to think, but He also wants us to know. And he wants our thinking to be based upon what we know, what we know, what we believe, what we know fully, what we understand. That's where our thinking should be. We shouldn't just be guessing. All right. Namizo means to think. And this is very illustrative of the Christian way of life and where believers get themselves in trouble. Because they act upon what they're thinking and their thinking isn't based upon what they know. It's based upon what they kind of know, what they hope to know, what they sort of know. They don't truly know, but this is still how they're thinking. 
And so there's that aspect of uncertainty and doubt. Okay? And that's not faith. Romans 14 says, whatever you're doing, do it without doubting. Because whatever is not of faith is sin. If you're proceeding forward and you're not exactly sure, you know, well, I think this is the will of God. Say, I think it's okay for me to marry this guy. I think he's a believer. He says he is. (laughs) He started coming to church with me when we started dating. I think he's saved. I think he's a believer. I think I should marry him. Well, wait a minute. What kind of thoughts are those? Do you think or do you know? Do you believe or are you wishing? Okay? Because... Nomizo is an idea of believing, but it's believing on some pretty shaky evidence and just believing because you want to believe it. All right? It's not pistis. It's not faith. It's not pistuo. It's not belief grounded in a promise. So often, unbelievers accuse our faith of being kind of like this. Unbelievers will accuse the faith of a believer as being kind of a, a wishful thinking or a blind faith or just putting your trust in something and hoping it works out. That's not our faith, and we know that. But the world quite often paints us in that position. Now, pistuo is a faith grounded in, in faithful promises. This is a belief that's formed with some ideas, kind of some tentative ideas. You know, anything tentative that you're willing to change if something else, you know, turns out to be true. Right? Anyway. Um, this is what Mary and Joseph were doing. They had... Suppose they had thought it wasn't really grounded in fact and they didn't really have knowledge. We were told in the previous verse they, they didn't know. Uk egnosen it said. They didn't gnosko, but they were rather supposing. Namidza, they were supposed, they were just thinking that this was the reality. This, uh, as I say, is very important not only for this passage, but in application for the Christian way of life. Are we just thinking something's true or do we know? See, because anything we do has to be based upon what we know, what we are convicted of. I know whom I have believed in. I know where my faith is. I know what I'm doing when I'm pursuing the will of God. Thirdly, they were astonished to see him in the middle of the temple teachers. They were astonished to see him in the middle of the temple teachers. Again, not in a class, not with other students, but in the middle of the temple teachers. In a private session among the professors. And so they were astonished. Eris passive indicative of ekpleso. Ekpleso. E-K-P-L-E-S-S-O. Ekpleso. Number 1605. And when you think pleso, think punch in the face. Alright? The, the imagery is being struck. Being struck. If the, Pharise- if, the, if the imagery of the teachers was one of insanity, the imagery here of the parents is one of being struck, of, of an actual physical blow sometimes. Just being struck, it just hits you. Okay? And we have this happen all the time. We have the same idiom in English, too, where something just hits you. Where you're reading something or you see something, and all of a sudden you're just struck by it. You know, and, and understanding dawns on you and you're struck. It's, it's the same, it's the same uh, imagery that we have in, in 
modern English idiom where something just strikes you and you are amazed, you are overwhelmed. Okay? Quite often there's a stunning effect to a physical blow. And it doesn't have to be a very hard physical blow, but it's just the, the senses, the way the body is designed, the senses at certain pressure points and certain locations on your body are designed where when that first little hit hits your body, there's a stunning effect where the senses are struck, they're stunned, they're, they're processing for the moment the fact that you've even been hit in the first place. Okay? And so in a lot of um, unarmed um, uh, combat techniques and unarmed uh, physical techniques that law enforcement uses and so forth, uh, you're trained to deliver one of those stunning blows, first of all, just as a distraction device, just to put your opponent on a in a momentary, just a second, two seconds, to the moment where their, their brain is trying to process the fact that, that they just got hit. See, And while the brain is trying to process that, uh, meanwhile, in that moment of being stunned, you can then take follow-up action and, and put yourself in a better position to take more control over the circumstance. See, You don't want to stop at that stage, <laughs> because when the stun wears off, then if you haven't done anything, you just all you did was you angered whoever it was you're trying to, <laughs> trying to physically take control of. But as a good first step, you, you stun them. You put them off their, off their guard. And, and it really does. It, it just overwhelms the senses. The brain is trying to process the fact that it just got hit. Okay? And for that brief moment, then you can reposition yourself and take action and do whatever. Well, here's Joseph and Mary, and they're looking all over for him. And, and this is now the third day. You know, they didn't see their, their son on Sunday. They thought he was in the caravan. And on Monday, they were looking all around for him, and they had to travel back a whole day to get back to Jerusalem. And they get back on Tuesday, now on the third day, after three days, and they're looking all over for him. Well, where would he be? You know, does he like fishing? You know, would he be down fishing? Does he like books? Do you want to find him in the bookstore? Are we going to find him in the computer store? You know, you know, places where I might suspect we're going to find Bob. You know, we're going to go look for Bob in the, you know, he's in the scout shop. He's looking for camping equipment or he's at the computer store. And, you know, they find him in the temple. Okay. They knew where to look. <laughs> they knew where their young man had uh, interest. And they didn't find him in the classroom with other students. They found him here with the teachers. And uh, he's asking them questions, eliciting responses from the teachers. That doesn't typically happen. Typically, students learn, teachers teach, and the questions are coming from the teachers to the student. But he's now asking them questions of the cross-examination variety. And so they're astonished. I guess the term astonished, the New American Standard, rightly renders the, the amazement. The, the slap in the face, how they're, they're struck by what they're, what they're seeing here. There's a whole realm of other places where Ecclesiastes gets used in Matthew and in Mark and Luke and Acts. Um, but I'm running out of time for this session. Um, Matthew 7, 28, 13:54, 19:25, 22:33. Anybody listening on tape can't see the screen and can't see the references there. Uh, Mark 1, 22, Mark 6, 2, Mark 7, 37, 10, 26, 11, 18. The Gospel of Luke, we have it here in 248, 432, 943, and then in the Gospel of Acts, chapter 13, and verse 12. We'll give you an idea if you just want to look through those verses, the idea of just the shock, the stunning value, the, the hit in the face and can't believe what just happened. And you're looking at, they're, they're looking at their son, and they're shocked that here he is sitting in the midst of all these other teachers. Finally, in our point four, They did not understand 
that did not understand. And between verse 49 and verse 50, when he said to them, he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand this statement which he had made to them. There are two words that are utilized there in verse 49 and verse 50 for to know and to understand. And so we will come back to this. Um, I hate to give it to you. I'm already seven minutes past the hour. I'd hate to give this to you now in a very hurried fashion and I'll spend some time on this because I think this really cuts to the core. And we're teaching this Life of Christ series in a family class. And I think this really cuts to the core of what do you do in a family when different members of the family, and they're all believers, Joseph's a believer, Mary's a believer, Jesus is a believer, when you have different members in the family that are all believers and yet they have a different understanding of the will of God. The husband wants to move to Timbuktu and start a ministry to uh, deaf people. And the wife says, I don't really think that's the will of God. <laughs> I don't want to move to Timbuktu. Uh, we, we don't have any finances to live in Timbuktu. And you don't even know sign language. How would you have a ministry to deaf people? And, you know, so there's a different understanding here of the will of God. All right. It can happen in a family. It can happen between a marriage. It can happen um, between generations. Where, quite frankly, the older generation just doesn't understand the approach the younger generation is trying to do. Okay? Does it mean that one's wrong and the other's right? Or does it just mean that the different people have different understandings? See? So we will, uh, we'll examine this a little bit more carefully next week. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for preserving a story for us here in the scriptures where we have uh, shown to us this, this family and, and our Savior and an understanding that he had, a conviction he had, and yet Joseph and Mary had, likewise, had not been given that same understanding, that same leading. Joseph himself was a man of tremendous maturity. Joseph himself was accustomed to uh, receiving angelic messengers and instructions. And, and Joseph was humble to obey those instructions. And, and, uh, and yet he wasn't given this kind of guidance that his, it was time for his son, to, uh, his adopted son, to step out and, and uh, pursue, pursue these things. And yet his son, Jesus, was very convicted that this was the time to, to uh, pursue God the Father's business. So... I pray for an understanding on these matters, Father. I pray for uh, a message of grace where believers can understand how different believers can have different convictions at different times. And, uh, and yet, Father, I also pray for the sense of wisdom where we can confirm things with two and three witnesses and, and with like-mindedness. Father, I do thank you for like-mindedness. I thank you that you are not the author of confusion. I thank you that you've designed the local church as a body and that we can seek your will on the basis of like-mindedness and be blessed, Father, when you do supply that kind of guidance. So this is in your hands, Father. We just thank you for giving us such Bible teaching and giving us such examples to learn from. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you. 